Take your Bibles, if you would, please. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, and we'll start off at verse 11 when we get there. In the mountains of East Tennessee, there's a beautiful little church, but this beautiful little church has a very strange name. The sign on the church says, Compromise Church. There is a story behind that name. The church had been built in the early 20th century, and the congregation of that church could not agree on a name. One group of the church wanted to call it one name, and another group was determined to name it something else. The conflict in the church became so severe that it threatened to split the church right down the middle. So instead of splitting the church, both sides could agree that they named it, or could agree to call it Compromise Church. So they had the sign made up, hung it on the church, Welcome to Compromise Church. Imagine trying to invite someone to join you this upcoming Sunday to Compromise Church. And then you'd have to explain the name. Well, back in the day, there was a fight, almost split the church. Say, I've been part of churches, I had fights, I don't need to join another church where there's fighting going on. Compromise Church. In a sense, that is what happened in the life of Israel. They did not drive out the pagan gods and the pagan people. They were given the promised land. And instead of flushing it out, they decided to accommodate to the culture of the people that were around them. When we get to this part of Judges, in a sense, God had not speaking to them or has not spoken to them in more than 200 years. Remember named Joshua, who came into the promised land and they conquered Jericho with the following of those great walls. Joshua is long off the scene and since then, the Jews started a downward spiral that lasted for the entire period that we call the Judges. Now, as you hear me use the word judge, don't think of a man in a black robe sitting behind a big desk with a gavel. That, not that kind of judge, but rather think of a judge as a, as a spiritual leader that would rise up or like a general, a military leader that would rise up. Sometimes they were both, both military and spiritual leaders. But they would only rise up for a very short time, accomplished a very singular task, and then they would float away into the history or pages of history. During the period of the judges, which was 330 years, the government of Israel was loosely a confederation of tribes that gathered around a central shrine that we know of as the Ark of the Covenant. Without a spiritual leader to guide them, they tended to rebel and fall into worship of false gods time and time again. In Judges chapter 25, which is towards the end of the book, we have one verse that pretty much sums up the life or the period of Judges, and it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So why did a man do what he did? Because to him it seemed it was right. It might not line up with the law that God had given them. But they were doing what was right according to their own heart and to the morals that they decided to govern themselves with. Foreign nations and surrounding tribes would oppress Israel during this time. 
Judges would rally the people to defeat them. But Israel found itself in a pattern. And this pattern repeated itself over and over. And if you can envision this pattern as just a circle, a circle that kept repeating itself, at the very top of the circle, we would call that peace. Where Israel was at peace with its surrounding neighbors. But it was also at peace with God too. As you move along that circle, they would come out of peace because they would fall into disobedience. They would turn their back on God. And they would begin to worship the gods of the neighbors or the people around them, the gods that they worshipped. And as we move on down, they would become oppressed. And trying circumstances would come in. And that would cause them to turn back to God. And they would pray to God in earnest to deliver them. And guess what God would do? He would deliver them. But then... They would go back to the top of that circle. They would have some peace. It wouldn't stay that way because they would turn their back again on God. And during the period of Judges of 330 years, I want to look at just a snapshot of one of the judges that rose up for an occasion by a man by the name of Gideon. During his lifespan, for seven years, leading up to the point in chapter 6, the Jews had hid in caves to protect themselves from the Midianites who were the most current threat to them. The Midianites and their tactic was they would not come on down and just scorch earth and kill everyone there and just burn everything. But rather instead, their mode of tactic was after the Israelites had brought in their harvest, then the Midianites would come on down and take what was already harvested. So the Israelites, they would plant the seed and they would tend the crops. They would water the crops. They would harvest the crops and they would bring them in. And when all of the work was done, then the Midianites would swoop down from the lands around them, come and take their crops and leave the Israelites with absolutely nothing, even though they put all of the work into it. And it was in this kind of world that Gideon was a young man. His father was thoroughly compromised. Worshipping both God and worshipping Baal. But this we know, you cannot worship two gods. You only have one master. So it is safe to say that though on the outside, Gideon's father might say, he worships God and that's his compromise. I'm going to worship Baal and I'm going to worship God as well. This we know, you can only worship one or the other. And since he was worshipping Baal, we know he was not worshipping God. And as we look at this man Gideon, the very first thing that we notice about him, right off the bat, is that he was a fearful man. Fearful. How do we know that? Let's now start in verse number 11. And there was an angel of the Lord. Now, what's an angel? It's one of those floaty things up in the sky that glows and everything. Well, angels were messengers from God. And that's what they do. That's what they accomplish. God has a message, and many times He will deliver that message through an angel. So here we have a messenger of God. And he sat under an oak, which was in Oprah, where you get a car, and you get a car, and you all get a car. (laughs) Wrong Oprah. This is Ophrah. Excuse me. That pertained unto Joash, the Abzerite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. This is the opening scene that we find Gideon. And what he is doing is he is threshing wheat in a wine press. A wine press is simply a spot where they dug down into rock, carved out of rock, a hole. 
And they would put their grapes down in there. And they would press their grapes. And the juice would come out of those grapes and assemble into a lower part. And that's where they would collect the juice from. Now, how would they thresh wheat? I've never done it a single day in my life. And neither have you. Well, maybe you have. I don't know. But to thresh wheat, they would go to an elevated place. A place where there was some wind. There was a current that would move through there. Because they would first beat the wheat and loosen the chaff from the actual kernel. And then they would throw it all up into the air. And the chaff that was light, that was a small protector around the the kernel, that would blow away. And then the wheat itself would actually fall back down. And the best place to do that would be on a threshing floor, which was an elevated spot. But if you're in an elevated spot, that means you're easy to see. So Gideon, he was able to harvest some of his crops. And he didn't want it to be taken by a Midianite that might be spying somewhere behind the bushes. So he took his small, meager crop that he had and he went down into a wine press. Below ground where he could not be seen. And it is in that hole he's trying to separate the chaff from the wheat so he could go home and make something of it. And as I think about Gideon, and I try to envision creatively what was Gideon going through, trying to thresh wheat under such circumstances, and down in that hole, taking the wheat and the chaff and throwing it up in the air, and there is no wind to catch it. So I thought maybe he would just blow some of it. They didn't have fans back then that they could actually use. What a miserable process that he is going through right now because of the fear that he is in. Let's look at what else the angel says in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. If this was a stage play, it's at this point the audience would erupt in laughter. Why? Because of the strange contradiction from what the angel says to what we're actually seeing. And if I was directing this play, when the angel came on and said, Thou mighty man of valor, I think it would be a good point to have some thunder in the background, maybe some flashes of light, and a spotlight on Gideon down there in the hole. It's like, that is not a mighty man. Is the angel mocking Gideon? And he sees him down in this hole, and the Bible tells us the first verse that we read, the angel actually sat down by the oak. So the angel gets comfortable. And he's sitting down. And Gideon's down there and says, Hey, <laughs> you mighty man of valor. That would be cruel. The angel is not mocking Gideon at all. God isn't in this moment speaking to Gideon based on what Gideon is, but based on what God is calling or going to do and make him into. So he doesn't see Gideon down in the hole. As he is. Instead, he calls a mighty man of valor because I am going to make you a mighty man. God is forward thinking. He's saying, I see you right now, and you're not a mighty man. But if you follow me, and you follow my instructions, I will make you a man of valor. God, or Gideon, is not called because he is courageous, but rather he is made courageous as a result of his call, and we'll see that. You see, God, when he calls us, he doesn't see us or define us by the condition that we are currently in, but by what he is determined to make us be. 
God has such great plans for us. And it's up to us to follow his leading. So when God looks down at a man cowering in a hole and says, man of valor, God is saying, I see something in you that no one else does. I can make you something that no one else can. Just follow me and I will make you a man of war and I'll make you a victor. Picture Gideon, down on that hole. Angel's up here, his back is to the yoke. Gideon looks up out of that hole, tells that angel, I got two questions. Two questions for you. Now picture Gideon. It's been 200 years since God has revealed himself to Israel. And in this moment, Gideon, as a fearful man, cowarding, and maybe with a little bit of bitterness in his heart, tells this angel he's got two questions for him. What are those two questions? Let's look at it. Verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all of this befallen us? What is Gideon asking? He's saying, Lord, you said you're with us. If you're really with us, take a look around. Why is all this happening? Why is our harvest taken? Why are the Midianites owning us the way that they are if you're truly with us? What is Gideon missing here? Did God leave Israel? No. Did the people leave God? Yes. The second question that Gideon has to ask is even more confusing. The second part of verse 13. And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? God, why don't you do great things for us anymore? Is what Gideon is asking. We hear the stories of what you did for our fathers. The ten plagues in Egypt. And then you parted the Red Sea. And then you took care of them for those 40 years in the wilderness. God, you did all those miracles for them. Why aren't you doing miracles right now? And what Gideon is not even realizing, dude, you've got an angel right in front of you. You've got a messenger of the Lord sitting right there. And you don't even pick up on it. Why? Because he is absolutely bitter. Have you ever looked to heaven and asked God, where are you? God, I don't feel your presence. God, I, I just don't feel your, your hand right now. Where are you? Has God left us? No. Do we sometimes leave God? Yeah. When you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. In verse 15, look where we have. And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? How am I going to be this man of valor? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You know what Gideon's trying to convey right here? You got the wrong guy. I am not your man. And I, I'm, the whole time I'm envisioning this conversation... Angel up there, Gideon down here, with all of his wheat around him. It's just a failed project. He said, I am the least. Look, my family is the least clan, smallest clan Manasseh. And when you look at my family, I'm on the bottom. So why are you looking at me? He's saying, God, I'm small. I'm a coward. And at this moment, here is God's one-line answer. 
And it's God's one-line answer for so many things in our life. Underline it. Mark it down. Don't forget it. Verse number 16. Everything you need is in this statement. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. What does God tell him? I am with you. Put a period after each word. I am with you. You, Gideon, do not mess this up. Do not forget this. I know you're down there. And I know exactly what I see. You're cowering. You're fearful. I'm going to be with you. If God is with us, what else matters? Anything? No. And that is what this messenger of God is trying to communicate to Gideon. He's saying, look, I'm going to take out with you a massive Midianite army. It's going to be as if it's one little guy doing it. Then the angel gives Gideon's first steps. And throughout the message today, we're going to see God give Gideon one step at a time. God doesn't reveal all of the steps Gideon's going to take. God doesn't give Gideon a vision of the victory at the end. Instead, he says, this is your step for right now. This is your next step. This is your next step. And that's how God works in our life. He doesn't reveal all of the steps. He says, this one. You take this one, I will then give you the next one. Step number one for Gideon right here was, the angel said, go prepare me a meal and bring it. Okay. Never fed an angel before. Didn't know you would eat either, but I'll do that. He goes, prepares a meal. He brings it to the angel, sets it down on the rock. You think the angel eats it? The angel takes its staff. It touches the rock that the food is on. A great fire comes out of it, consumes the food, and the angel disappears. That's a strange first step. But it is a first step. And Gideon passed. And from this... Gideon's takeaway from that exchange right there with that, in, with that angel was this. That was God. There's no doubt about it. Well, we see Gideon was not only a fearful man. We're going to have a little glimpse into his life. He was also a faithless man. A man who does not have a whole lot of faith and trust in God. After that exchange with that angel, the Midianites launch a massive assault on Israel. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon again at that moment and tells Gideon, I want you to gather some men so we could form a resistance against the Midianite army. Gideon again says, okay God, how can I be sure that you're going to be with me? How can I be sure that you want me to do this? And that at this moment, this is not a step given to Gideon from the Lord. This is him going off script and doing his own thing. He comes up with a great idea. You ever come up with a great idea? You think it's an awesome idea until you share it with someone? And they don't have the same vision? Say, That's dumb. I don't get it. Say, no, you're dumb. It's a good, good idea. This is Gideon's idea. Say, all right, God, if you're going to be with me, this is what, what you've got to do. I don't know why Gideon right now feels like he's in a position to talk to God like this. Gideon says, okay, God, I'm going to take this fleece. I'm going to put it out here, outside. I'm going to go to bed. When I wake up in the morning, God, this is what I want. Are you listening, God? Take notes if you need to, God. When I wake up, I want the fleece to be wet, but the entire ground all around it, I want it to remain dry. 
Gideon that night goes to bed after he puts the fleece out. Do you think Gideon slept that well? Do you think Gideon peaked? Got up in the middle of the night at all? We don't know. But we do know that in the morning, he wakes up. He goes out to that fleece. And with his sandals on, he could tell with his toes that the grass is dry. He's thinking, boy, if that fleece is dry, I am off the hook. He goes over to that fleece. He touches it, picks it up, and it feels a little damp. But to be sure, he wrings out the fleece, the Bible says. And the Bible also gives us this detail. He was able to fill up a bowl of water that came out of that fleece. So there was no denying it was wet. It's at this point Gideon said, yes, sir, I will do this, right? No. Gideon said, God, that was way too easy. If you really are God, you'll be able to do this. You'll be able to make all of the ground wet, but the fleece is going to be dry. Gideon sets out the fleece, goes to bed, comes back, and in the morning with the sandals on and the toes, he could tell the old ground has dew all around it. His toes are wet. He goes over to that fleece thinking, I bet it's going to be wet just like it was the night before. He picks up that fleece, and it's as dry as could be. Do you think he tried to wring any water out of it? I do. How do I know that? Because I would. Just to see. And he tries to wring it, and... It was absolutely dry. The next step for Gideon is he has to rally some men. Now when Gideon threw out that fleece, was it to determine God's will? No. He already knew what he was supposed to do. He did it to ensure that God was going to be with him. And now that he has that own confirmation in his heart, he's able to recruit 32,000 men. The problem is the Midianites have 128,000, the Bible tells us. If you're quick with math, you'll know that is they are being outnumbered four to one. Even with the 32,000 men he was able to gather. And God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you have a numbers problem. And no doubt Gideon said, you're right, thank you for noticing. We are outnumbered four to one. I did my best to recruit. I only got 32,000. God said, that's not the numbers I'm talking about. I'm not going to give you more men. You just have too many. Okay. And then God gives Gideon his next step. He says, Gideon, I want you to dress your 32,000 men and tell them, if you are afraid, you get to go home. Gideon assembles them, says, if you're afraid, you get to go home. A bunch of them went home. He's now left with only 10,000 people. 10,000 men. He is now outnumbered 13 to 1. And God says, Gideon, you still have too many. And Gideon gets his next step from God. And he says, look, tell all of your men to go down to the water and drink. Those that get in the water on their hands and knees to drink, you send them home. Those who bring up water to their mouth, those are the ones that you're going to take in the battle. Gideon says, all right, men, we're going to come down this way. We're going to go down to that water. It's a hot day. Let's go get a drink. He doesn't share that detail with them that God just told them to use. They all go down. First man gets down, hands and knees in the water. Go home. Second man, go home. Go home. Go home. Go home. All of you right there, just go home. Goodness, is anyone going to bring water up to their mouth? And finally one person does, yes, you stand over here. Yep, right over here. Go home. Go home. Go home. By the end of that exercise, Gideon had over here standing only 300 men. The rest went home. He's outnumbered now 450 to 1. And Gideon says, or God says, 
That's the number we need. And it was with those 300 men God brought Gideon to victory. By surrounding the Midians at night and blowing trumpets and breaking pitchers with lights inside. And it is in that confusion, it's in that chaos, God brought them to victory on that day. What can we learn from Gideon in this story? First, God doesn't call the brave. He makes the brave called. When God comes to you, He never starts with what you are. He starts with what He intends to make you and what you can be. So He looks at a cowering man in a hole and says, You are a man of valor. Satan is the one who starts with who you are and what you've done. And Satan defines you by that. Satan will whisper in our ear and he says, You're a failure. You're a coward. You're not as good as you could be or as you should be as everyone else. Problem is, when he's whispering these things, he's normally whispering true facts. He's whispering things from our past that we are ashamed of. He's whispering failures in our life. Here's how you tell the difference between the Holy Spirit's voice and the Satan's voice. Both of them will talk about your sin. And it's easy to confuse their voices, but here's how you tell. Satan beats you up for what you've done and who you are. But God starts with a declaration of what he's making you and wants to grow you into. Satan is past looking. And when he talks, it's all about the past and how no good it is. And when God talks, he says, look, I want to make you something better. I am looking forward. The sins of the past are done. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. Those are no longer. So when I look into your life, what I am seeing is next week, next month, next year, Gideon, I see you down there in a hole. Satan whispers to Gideon, you're no good. You're the smallest in your family. You're the weakest in your family. You're a coward. God looks down in that hole and he says, I'm going to make you something great. That's the difference between those two voices. Something else we can learn from Gideon. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is following God in the midst of fear. It's okay to have fear in your life. It's not okay for fear to run your life. I ran across this article about how to overcome fear of public speaking. You might be interested in this. Before you go on stage, stand still and feel the ground beneath your feet. Are you with me? Okay. Close your eyes and imagine yourself suspended from the ceiling by a thin thread. Are you there? Then imagine you are made of rubber. Look into the mirror and make a horse's laugh with your lips. Then go out on stage. And that's exactly what I did this morning before I came out. <laughs> if you read just about every secular article about overcoming fears, it will almost always talk about banishing the thoughts that cause fears. Don't let the, fear, the thoughts of fear in your mind. Just try to banish those. Get, get rid of those. Go, have them go away. Control your thoughts. Don't think about the things that scare you. But this is what God says. God's peace comes a very different way. It is not closing your eyes to the things that make you fearful. But it's rather opening your eyes to the presence of God in your life. 
When you open your eyes to the presence of God and you're reminded of the scriptures where it says, I will be with you. And you know God is with you. It's not a matter of a mental game of trying to banish every fearful thought. And as soon as you get one, try to think of something else or sing a song or get to a happy place in your mind. But it's rather, God, I have this fear and it's a legitimate fear, but my eyes are wide open to your presence in my life. But that leads us to this question. How do we know he is with us? How do we know he is by our side? And that pretty much was Gideon's question. How am I going to know? We have something today that shows us God is in control. He's on our side. And it's what Trent sang about right before I came up. It's because of his work on the cross and his love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love will cast out fear. Why? Because fear hath torment. Fear in our life will torment us. It will torment us mentally and emotionally. It will torment our heart. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. There is no fear in love. Think about all the ways God's love is perfect. God's love is perfect in its intensity toward us. God could not love us any more than he currently loves us right now. You are maxed out on the amount God loves you. You can't earn more love. You can't work for more love. You can't pray for more love from God to you. Its intensity is perfect. It's also perfect in its constancy. God says he will never leave us. It's perfect in its sufficiency. Being loved by him, our thirst is quenched. It's also perfect in its sovereignty. He commandeers every molecule in the universe to work out his good and perfect plan for our lives. With God's perfect love, what else is there to fear? And if you're here this morning, you're experiencing any kind of fear. Could it be that we've lost touch with one of those aspects of God's perfect love? Its intensity in our life, our constancy, its sufficiency, or its sovereignty. In my conclusion, true courage and faith will come from the presence and the promises of God's word. And those are given to us. Where do we find those? Where do I find the promises? Where do I find those truths? They are in the word of God. We don't work up courage. It doesn't come from our personality. We're born with a personality of of courage, but rather it comes from embracing our identity in Christ. It is received as a gift for following his leading. How do we follow his leading? One step at a time. What did Gideon do? What was step number one for him? Go make a meal. Something simple. He went and made the meal. What was the next step? Gather some men. Then before you know it, after Gideon took each step, they conquered an army of 128,000 people. What lists of weaknesses do we make for ourselves? Weaknesses that we believe invalidate us from doing something greater for God. What arguments do we make? 
Sometimes we just have to rattle ourselves and realize we need to come out of the comfort zone of our wine press. Sometimes we might offer the excuse of, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly accomplish that, Lord. Or someone else that I know would do a much better job. Or I don't have the strength, I don't have the energy, I don't have the resources. Gideon could have used all of those. He didn't have the strength, he didn't have the energy, he didn't have the resources necessary to him. We could say, I'm not as equipped as some others. The truth is, God uses the weak. He uses the fearful. He uses the ill-equipped. And it's in that very weakness, he is strong. All of the weaknesses Gideon was rattling off to that angel, God ended up using. At the end of the battle, no one went up to Gideon and said, man, your ability to general an army is unbelievable. Your courage was incredible. You were fearless out there. You're a strong leader. No one said that to Gideon. So, who got the credit for the battle? God. God and God alone. God wants to use the weak, the fearful. He is strong. It's in our fearlessness that he proves himself more than able. And it's in our lack that he equips us. And so my challenge this morning, you might find yourself a little fearful. You might find yourself lacking faith and not having as much as possible. God never leaves us. He's always right there beside us. But if we take each step that he tells us to, we'll get to where we need to go. And we'll get to where he wants us to be. And when God looks down at us, he doesn't see a list of all the weaknesses. He sees someone who's redeemed, someone who's forgiving, and someone he could do something great with. A small God could not take Gideon and do something great like that. That takes a big God. And it takes a big God also in our life to take us with our shortcomings, with our past, with our weaknesses, and do something great with it. But we have to be willing to take that first step and then that next step as he leads us. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.